Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Who is the most important person you have ever met? Might depend on what you mean by important. Could depend on what you mean by met. I grew up in Boonville, Missouri, a town of about 8,000 people near Columbia. And one of Boonville's admittedly limited claims to fame is Thespian Hall, which claims to be the oldest operational theater west of Appalachian Mountains. It's a really neat building. It's become a sort of arts and culture center in the community. And in the summers, a community theater group would put on musicals like Oklahoma or Music Man or Little Orphan Annie. I was never in any of these productions, but many of my family members were, so I'd often end up with some kind of job around the theater. And when I was maybe 11 or 12, I was an usher for the balcony section. And one evening, the governor came to our show. I know, it's very impressive. So an intermission, I walked down the steps, and the governor was in the lobby shaking hands. Now, this is going to shock some of you, but I was a shy and awkward child. <laughs> I know, it's hard to believe, right? And I didn't really want to be part of this meeting, the governor thing, so I tried to sort of walk behind him. And as I was doing that, he took a couple of big steps backwards, and I ended up pinned in the corner behind the governor with his security detail on either side. You know, they, they looked like Secret Service agents, right? They weren't, because that would be the federal government. But, you know, it's just me in the corner and like six inches between my nose and a wall of suit coats. And I remember thinking, I don't think they know I'm here. <laughs> and I don't think I'm supposed to be here. And I didn't do anything about it. I mean, I could have tapped them on the shoulder or something. I just stood there for what felt like a really long time until the lights started to blink and people went back to their seats. All of that to say the governor of Missouri is the most important person I've stood uncomfortably close to <laughs> without them knowing. You'd be hard-pressed to say that I met him. Right? I mean, really, I, I guess I haven't met anyone particularly important. Or have I? Let, let's see what Jesus has to say. We're in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there. They were in the north where Jesus was transfigured, and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So let's remember where we are in the story. Jesus has been very busy. He's been meeting people's needs, healing them, feeding them teaching them, serving them, and to everyone who would listen, he is telling them 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. That's Jesus' message. And the people have a variety of reactions to this message. And earlier in Mark, Jesus used a parable to talk about these reactions. He talks about planting seed. And some of them don't grow. And some of them do, but just barely. And some grow and flourish and return a crop. Jesus is saying that something new is imminent, something different than the way things are. And some people are threatened by this message. It's the people who like things the way they are, the people who benefit from the power dynamic of the day, people who don't feel like they have anything to repent of. Remember the scribes and the teachers of the law at the tax collector's house. Other people are indifferent to Jesus' message. They're also satisfied with the way things are, but they don't have so much as to be very afraid of losing it. And some people realize something is wrong. And what they hear in Jesus' message is hope. Hope for a new kind of kingdom. And some of those people don't just hear the hope, but act on it. Decide to stake their lives on it and leave what they have to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus has mostly been operating along the north coast of the Sea of Galilee, but recently he's taken his closest followers far to the north. And on the way there, on, away from the ears of those who don't hear hope in Jesus' words, he tells them what's really going on. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the long-awaited Redeemer, And just as his followers' hearts were soaring at this news, he tells them he's going to suffer. That the rejection of all of those powerful people will not just be disappointing, but deadly. He'll be killed, but he'll be raised again. You know, I think for us, 2,000 years of church later, it can be difficult to put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus' followers here. We're so steeped in the resurrection of Jesus and what it means and what a triumph it is, and that's good. We should be, but it makes it hard to follow the emotional roller coaster Jesus' followers are on. They don't know what we know. From our perspective, we might think that when they hear Jesus say, I'm the Messiah, they go, yay, And he says, but I'll be killed. And they go, oh no. And he says, but I'll be raised again. And they say, double yay. And they're twice as excited as they were before. But if you look at how they react, I think their journey is much more, yay, no, huh? You know, they they don't understand. Just imagine if someone in your life told you, They were going to be murdered and come back from the dead. Are they sure? Maybe you've even seen them do some stuff you can't explain. 
But are they sure? It is definitely one of those there's only one way to find out kind of situations, right? His followers are not left thrilled about this dying yet rising prediction. They're left somewhere between oh no and say what? Jesus and his followers arrive at their destination and he takes three of them up a mountain where they get a peek behind the curtain. They see Jesus transformed. And like DJ talked about two weeks ago, we get this awesome picture of the transcendence of God made manifest among us. Jesus is this dizzying merger of a power absolutely beyond our comprehension and yet huggable. And now we get to our passage. And they're traveling back south to Galilee. And once again, Jesus is staying away from those with unsympathetic ears. He has something to say just to his closest followers. The same perplexing thing he said on the way north. And this time, we're told not only did they not understand, but they were afraid to ask. Have you ever been afraid to ask? It means there's an answer to your question that you can't deal with. It's better to be uncertain. They're thinking, I've seen Jesus do some incredible things. But rise from the dead? I don't know. If it doesn't work, I've left everything. What happens to me? So being afraid to ask about that, let's see what was on the disciples' minds. We'll continue in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You know, I can imagine how the conversation started. Hey, guys, that whole dying and rising thing, that's, that's a little worrisome, right? But don't worry. I'm Jesus' best friend. He'll tell me what's going on, and then I'll tell you. Unless he tells me to keep a secret like the thing on the mountain I went to that you guys didn't. Why do we want to be first? Have you ever been there for the moment the cookies come out of the oven? There can be seven times as many cookies as kids, and yet it is still critical in each of their minds that they be the first to get a cookie. Why is that? We have a deep fear of scarcity. Just the theoretical possibility 
of scarcity frightens us. What if there's not enough? I better get the first cookie, just in case. You know, I didn't go back and look, but I think I've mentioned Genesis 3 every time I've been up there. See, I did it again. It's the story of Adam and Eve taking the fruit. It's the first sin. It encapsulates the broken thing about the human heart. That we see things we think will lead to life and we take them. And instead, they lead to death. And the next chapter, Genesis 4, illustrates one of the primary ways this brokenness affects our relationships with others. Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain, that's Adam and Eve's son, brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's not clear to me why God favored Abel's actions over Cain's in this moment. But it is clear that it was in this moment God tells him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? The thing Abel has can be yours, will be yours. But Cain, seeing Abel get what he wanted, get the first cookie, what if there's not enough? What if Abel has exhausted God's favor? And Cain's solution is to take Abel's life. And what he thinks will lead to blessing does not. It leads to banishment. Jesus is bringing a new kingdom, which begs the question, who's going to be the biggest deal in the new kingdom? The current kingdom has big deals, people who are first, who get the first cookie. In our world, being close to people in power comes with great privilege. And the disciples are in Jesus' inner circle. When Jesus brings his kingdom, they'll get instant promotions from nobodies to somebodies, and their portion will be secure. I can hear the argument continuing. Well, Jesus called me first. Or Jesus called me last, that is, he finally found the one he was looking for. Or Jesus told me something he didn't tell you. And no doubt the three who went up the mountain were sure it was one of them. So Jesus hears them talking, and he's not afraid to ask, what are you talking about? But now they're afraid to answer. They're embarrassed. They know Jesus isn't going to be impressed with this particular debate, and he's not. He tells them something that feels totally upside down. 
To be first, you must be last. You know, it's important to note here that Jesus doesn't push back on the concept of being great, of wanting to be great. What he says is that what it means to be great in God's kingdom is not what it means to be great in any other kingdom. And then he says kind of an odd thing. He brings a child among them and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and not just me, but the one who sent me. What does that mean? I mean, for me, the word received is a little tricky here. What does it mean to receive a person? The Greek word is dekomahi, and big English translations are split pretty much 50-50 on translating it either receive or welcome. And welcome maybe is a little easier for me. The word is pretty versatile in Greek. It's what Simeon did to baby Jesus, where it's translated took him up in his arms, like literally pick him up. It's what the shrewd manager told the debtor to do to his bill before he wrote on it, pick it up and write on it. It's used many times for the idea of welcoming someone into a town or a home. Later in the New Testament, it's used to describe what new believers have done with the gospel. They've received it. And it's what Stephen asked for God to do with his spirit while he was being stoned to death. Receive me. It has meanings like our words, pick up, receive, welcome, accept. It's a hospitality word. Jesus is saying, whoever fixes their attention on this little child, takes them up, welcomes them, receives them in his name, does those things not just to them, but to Jesus, and not just to Jesus, but to God. Now that is pretty remarkable. In the Old Testament, when people write poetry about God, they often use poetic illustrations of a thunderstorm. For people of that day, a thunderstorm is the most powerful, least controllable thing they know. Let's look at an example, Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, vo the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf in Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. That's thousands of years old, and we just sang something just like it this morning, right? The mountains bow down, the seas roar at the sound of your name. We still talk like that. 
That's the poetry. And when God appears visibly in the narrative of the Bible, it's often in the form of fire and smoke. The people of Israel escaping captivity in Egypt were led by a column of smoke by day and of fire by night. And when they arrived at the mountain of God, let's look at what they saw, Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. It's not a picturesque volcano in the distance. It's creation trembling at the presence of its creator. And if you keep reading that story, after seeing that, the people don't go up the mountain. They send Moses. And when God revealed his name to Moses, it was in a burning bush. And his name, I am, seems like an incomplete sentence. And that's kind of the point because for God, it's not an incomplete sentence. He is the only one who just, I am, not I am a or I am the. There's nothing he needs to be compared to. What I'm trying to do here and failing because it's impossible is to put in our minds just how big and beyond us God is. You know, the ancients knew the world was a very big place, but not nearly as big as we know it to be. We could come up with some gigantic metaphors, even bigger than thunderstorms. This is a picture of our sun and that plume in the upper left corner is a solar flare, sort of a sun thunderstorm. Now to get an idea for how big that is, let's move our planet next to it. It is absolutely enormous. And if we were actually right there, it would boil our oceans in an instant. Now our sun is impressively enormous. But how big is it compared to one of the biggest stars we know? It's down there in the corner, if you can see it. U.Y. Scooty, which admittedly has a silly name, is a red hypergiant, an absolute monster. You could fit five billion of our suns inside its volume. It pumps out more energy in one day than our sun does in a thousand years. It is 400,000 times brighter than our sun. And if you want to see it in the night sky, you can't. Not without a telescope. Because not only is it mind-bogglingly big and mind-bogglingly bright, it is mind-numbingly far away. The universe is truly astounding. And all of this 
because God said it should be so. With just a word. Trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars. God is beyond us, absolutely beyond our comprehension. And yet, when you welcome a little child, you welcome the fire and the smoke. You welcome him whose voice ignites stars. You welcome he is. And to me, this is more astounding than the very, 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 very big star. God identifies with the little child, with you. It would be easy and reasonable to believe that compared to the awesome might of God, nothing you do matters. But it does. Jesus says right here that how you treat the most lowly person you encounter is of cosmic significance. DJ mentioned we're about to have VBS. You have probably not forgotten about that. And it would be rather easy and convenient if I began to tell you that this passage featuring a little child is why you should volunteer at VBS and our children's ministry. And, and those are great things. And you should do them. But it would make this passage too narrow if it was just about a little child. There's a cultural context here. The society Jesus lived in, children, occupy the lowest level on the social hierarchy. They're the furthest from the people in power that you want to know. They produce nothing. They can do you no favor in return. Spending any time on a child not your own offers no return on investment. All of your effort benefits them and not you. Jesus is not talking just about children. He's talking about giving of yourself when there is no possibility of gain in return. Picture the kind of person you're least likely to welcome. That's who Jesus is talking about. So how are we doing on serving like that, on loving like that. I'm not doing great. You know, I knew I was going to talk about this, and this week things have happened to demonstrate to me that I am not doing great on that. You know, demographics would say that most people in this room have a mortgage. Imagine if someone paid your mortgage, not promised to pay it if you something, but just pays it. Like you look at the balance and it's zero. It's paid, it's done, it's not coming back. What would you do? You'd jump up and down, right? Like cartwheel, anybody? Now let's imagine they'd say, you know what? Tell anyone you like what I've done for you and I'll pay their mortgage too. 
you'd go tell everyone you know, wouldn't you? Why not? Why not? Jesus paid a debt much greater than a mortgage. Why don't we jump up and down? Why don't we fall over ourselves to tell everyone who will listen to spread that kind of generosity? Let's change our analogy a bit. Instead of your mortgage, let's say this benefactor pays your crippling gambling debt and makes this same offer to pay others. No one's really ashamed of having a mortgage. I mean, if anything, it's a bit of a status symbol, right? But gambling debt, that's different. It implies you made some poor choices, that you were foolish, maybe very foolish. There's shame. And having it paid off is great, but telling other people about it is still a little uncomfortable. We don't want to admit that we had a debt in the first place. And we especially don't want to reveal how large it was. Something that would make other people judge us even after our slate was clean. And you know, even if we can stomach admitting to our own debt, it's awkward to suggest to someone else that they have a gambling debt that needs paying. They may not want the help. They may not think their debt is so bad. We get ourselves into messes and we want to get ourselves out. Offers of help aren't always welcome and receiving them feels like weakness. Those who are great don't need help. They can work it out. You know, if we're thoughtful about what is being said here, we have to wonder about the role of works in our walk with Jesus. I mean, Jesus is telling us to do something here, right? To serve other people. This has been a great tension in the church for 2,000 years. The Reformation was about this. To what extent is my standing before God, is my relationship with Jesus based on my actions? I think this passage sheds some light on this question. I think many of us read this book as being about how to be saved. But really, a lot of it is about life after you've welcomed Jesus. You know, the end of the book is not, and now you're saved, right? You see, being saved by Jesus isn't a retirement. It's not the end. It's not a ticket out of the cares of the world where you kick back and you wait for him to take you away one day. When you meet Jesus, it's the first day of a new career. Remember the parable of the sower we talked about earlier. The seed is given without condition, but not without expectation. Jesus sows, 
to produce a crop. Many times what was sown. And we have a part in that. Now the job analogy I used a minute ago is a bad one. Because jobs, like many of our human relationships, are conditional and transactional. And our instinct is that our relationship with God is like that too. If we treat it like a job, we'll assume that our performance was part of getting it or part of keeping it. Have I welcomed enough children to get on Jesus' payroll? How long can I go without serving someone before it's a problem? But that's not it. He paid our debt. It's done. The first time Jesus told his disciples about how he would die and be raised, he told them that what they say about him matters. They're already following him. What they say matters. And this time, he's telling them that what they do is of significance. It matters. The way to be great in the kingdom, not the way into the kingdom, the way to be great in the kingdom is to serve. When Jesus talks about being the least and serving others, he's not talking about how to get my attention so that I'll accept you. He's talking about how to live in the acceptance he has given you as a generous gift. Our debts are paid. It's done. But there is a very real sense in which our inaction, our unwillingness to live out the kind of life our king describes has a real impact on the world and those around us. God is sovereign. The kingdom is coming. But how we get there, he shares with us. What we do matters. Jesus predicts his death three times in Mark's gospel. We talked about the first. This is the second. There'll be one more in chapter 10. And it's very interesting that each of these predictions is followed by a story of the disciples deeply misunderstanding what Jesus is about and Jesus having a lesson for them in selflessness. The first time, Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter is focused on an earthly kingdom and Jesus tells his disciples that to follow him, they must deny themselves. To save their lives, they must lose them. The second time, this time, the disciples argue about who will be the greatest, and Jesus tells them that greatness in his kingdom is not like any other. To be first, you must be last. And the third time, which we'll get to later this year, the disciples are still arguing about who will be closest to Jesus. And Jesus explains that being at his right and his left is not like being close to an earthly king. It doesn't come with preference and privilege. It comes with suffering and service. To be great is to be a servant. To save your life, you must lose it. To be first, you must be last. 
to be great, you must serve. Mark is closely associating these upside-down ideas with what is going to happen to Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus ushers in a new kingdom. And unlike any kingdom before or since, he did not establish it on military power, not on political intrigue, not on cultural supremacy. Jesus knows that the only way to win those games is to not play them, and that every kingdom founded on those things will fall eventually. He establishes a kingdom based on service. What held Jesus to the cross? It wasn't nails. What are nails to the fire and the smoke? It was love. Jesus loves his Father, and he loves us. Jesus endured the cross because he loves us. This is what his kingdom is founded on. So it's been 2,000 years. Let's settle the disciples' debate. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus will be because he's the most least. He's servant to all. One of the great lies of sin is that there is not enough. Even in the kingdom of God, there's not enough. It's not safe to be selfless. Jesus says there is enough. And he is so confident of that, he puts everyone before himself in his kingdom. Everyone. And for that, he's the greatest. Who's the most important person you've ever met is a trick question because Jesus says you've never met anyone unimportant because God identifies with the meekest among us. It's also a trick question that has a right answer. Jesus is the most important person you've ever met. You've met him in every person you've ever served. You know, I met someone recently that told me that when she became a police officer, she saw so much suffering that she couldn't believe there was a good God in the world. I haven't experienced what she has, but Jesus has. Every consequence of the cruelty we inflict on each other fell on Jesus. He knows. And Jesus' answer to the person who has seen suffering that doesn't make sense in a world with a God is to commit an act of selfless love towards them that does not make sense in a world without one.
And friends, if those kind of people are going to encounter Jesus, to learn what he's done for them, it is likely to be through one of us welcoming them in his name. That's how Jesus meant it to be. His ministry is in heaven, and he sent the helper, the spirit, so that our ministry could be here. We represent him, carry his name. We welcome in his name. God doesn't appear in smoke and flame anymore. He appeared in a human body, Jesus. And now that Jesus has ascended to the Father, we are the body, empowered by the Spirit. We are what people see. And when we, in his name, seek to be last, to serve all, people have to wonder. They don't seem to care about the cookie. Who paid their debt? Let's pray. Father, you are awesome. For thousands of years, people have looked into the night sky and known you are awesome, and we can look deeper than anyone before, and you just get more awesome. You are completely and totally beyond our ability to understand, and yet you humbled yourself to appear among us in a way that we could. You have served us first, and we've not deserved it, but you've loved us because you are love. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that the seeds you plant in our hearts grow and flourish. Help us to love each other the way you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.